and welcome to Kane Queer Home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. I have been watching an uh-huh. inordinate amount of crime dramas. And, you know, Jake said to me, my partner Jake said to me, is it me or are there loads of crime dramas like murder mysteries and so mm-hmm. on now compared to, you know, in the past? And I think a part of it is definitely the algorithm. Oh, yeah. Well, they've already been around. Yeah. I mean, there, there's been like, you know, segments on 60 Minutes and Unsolved Mysteries. Like there have been TV shows entirely built around this for quite some time. And some of them dip their toes into like, you know, ancient aliens who built the pyramids kind of territory. But mostly you have these series that do look at things like, you know, the history of serial killers or local crime. Sometimes they'll even do like an entire segment on like white collar crime of some variety or another. This is not new. I think it's just recently just landed on uh, Jake's radar. And actually um, the history of podcasting has been basically the history of the resurgence of true crime. And uh, it's also really interesting if you look at um, sort of the, the representation of gender in podcasting. It's really interesting that a lot of the, uh, I guess you could say like issues, not issues, the sort of like science and tech, the sort of nerdy podcasts tend to be male dominated, but um, true crime is definitely female dominated. Most of the true crime podcasts that I've heard have female podcasts and predominantly female audience. And I don't know why everyone that I've asked, like we have, we don't know what happened there that they care, but yeah, that it's a thing. But yeah, so it, it's it's definitely a thing, and it's been around for I don't know, maybe about ten years now. It's it's been getting more and more popular, and you get more and more people boots on the grounds doing like grassroots sort of personal interest that kind of thing. It, it's yeah, yeah. I think I think Jake, it, it he just didn't know until recently. Anyway, the reason why I bring it up is we were watching Catching Killers, so season two of Catching Killers. And uh, it's about an hour long, and you know it's it's an interesting dive into various serial killers, but not uh, not you know the the six part HBO documentary series level of detail, um, right? That you know that you might otherwise expect. So we were watching season two of Catching Killers, and the reason why I bring this up is because it is about the murders that took place in the gay village, um, you know, somewhat recently, I think 20, mm-hmm. uh, up as close as 2017, 2018, whenever it was. Yeah. Um, with uh, the serial killer, I mentioned his name only once, Bruce MacArthur, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the fact that he killed all of these people. You know, the first episode I thought was interesting, spoiler alert, I mean, we've talked about this so many times on our show, but oh yeah, the first episode <laughs> focused almost entirely on like the cannibal hunt Mm-hmm. But they, do you remember that when the Toronto police were like obsessed with the idea that these gay men were being eaten by people? Mm-hmm. I do remember that, yeah. So that was a whole episode, a whole one hour episode. And at the end of it, they happened to have arrested uh, somebody who was uh, soliciting a minor. Um, but I mean, that guy was just collateral damage in the witch hunt for cannibals. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really where this was going. Um, and then the second episode focused more on Bruce MacArthur, which happened after Andrew Kinsman was killed and there was so much public pressure. So long as you don't report the gory details while the story is hot, you're like, you know, having, you know, 15 years later, uh, uh, you know, the here's Jeffrey Dahmer, a little documentary about that, that kind of thing, that doesn't really inspire any kind of copycat anything because it's an old story by that point. It's not in the media. You're not going to attract much attention. Um, so some of that was, you know, we don't want copycat killers. If anything else, because it'll make the original guy harder to find. But like on top of that, you just we don't want copycat killers. We don't want another person out there being inspired to do stuff. So I know there was a lot of uh, direction from the province uh, sort of, you know, requesting you know, what we do and do not report. So like in the States, uh, some States don't let, um, if there's a school shooting, you don't say what kind of gun was used because then if somebody else also has that gun, that makes them fractionally more likely, but even just fractionally more likely is more likely. And that's too much, too likely. So they, they leave that kind of detail out in some places. So, I mean, some of that was 
good that they left it out. The family doesn't need to hear that. The, the family doesn't need that in the media. Yeah. You know, a part of me thought it was only a matter of time between the Toronto Gay Village murders became a TV show. Mm. Is it too soon? You know what I mean? Like this was only four years ago. This, mm-hmm. They must have started making this documentary um, pretty much as soon as he was uh, in handcuffs, I think. Yeah, like the, the way that I'm thinking about it is that there's two different ways of telling the story. Um, and and there, there's a rich history of this in sort of cinema and TV and that kind of thing, where on the one hand, you have movies and shows about serial killer from the perspective of the detective and from the perspective of the serial killer themselves. And if you do it from the perspective of the detective and you're really just looking at gathering evidence and investigating and interviewing people and stuff like that, it's way less gruesome. Like at that point in time, it's more of a procedural drama and it's more about, you know, how did the city, how did the police force, how did the mayor's office, how did uh, all the sort of affiliate things like, you know, in the case of uh, Toronto, that would be how did the OPP and RCMP respond to it? Um, that, that kind of thing. And, and that I think is way less gruesome than actually showing sort of a, what was that? A, a, Born natural born killers that that I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's a bit old now, but it was a, a movie about serial killers told from the perspective of the serial killers, and it was gruesome. Uh, fictionalized, thankfully, but like you know, it, it's a very different kind of story when you tell it from each of those different angles. And uh, I think if it's more hybridized, like classic. Silence of the Lambs, where you have the investigator and the actual murderer, and you're, you're telling both of their stories, that's too much. Catcher Killers is sort of a, a documentary style. And yeah. They relied heavily on, I think there were maybe four or five key interviews that were videoed that told the story. And nearly all of them were police at the Toronto Police Services. So mm-hmm. it was Toronto Police Service that was the, the main uh, investigating uh, partner for it. <laughs> it. It bugged me that all of the people interviewed in this series were the Toronto Police Service uh, investigators. And on the one hand, it is interesting to have that inside look from the lead investigators who were there on the ground. One of them is a very handsome man, so he makes a very good TV. Okay. But, you know, that's one thing. But I think having been from the community side, you know, talking to people in Toronto in 2017, 2018, before MacArthur was arrested, they yeah. had absolutely zero faith in the Toronto police's ability to, you know, solve a plastic bag as opposed to, you know, a, I mean, let alone a murder. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to reconcile what happened on the ground and the animosity against the Toronto Police Service with this episode of Catching Killers, which is really almost glorifying the police and, and the sort of, you know, turning them into heroes in, in the, the narrative being told. Mm. Take some time and, and watch it. It's on Netflix. It's not that hard to find. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still going through season seven of Peace Space Nine. So you got, uh, you got your priorities. I, I got my priorities. It's really weird because most of Star Trek, the, the women are babes and the men are whatever they're character actors but like dc is nine for for some reason and it's specifically the bajorans all the bajoran men are dreamboats it's really weird it's uh it's most of the trill men are, are, are dreamboats as well it's it's very much the dark horse of of star trek but that's neither here nor there i i rarely like uh the netflix documentary styles i've seen a, a couple that i didn't hate and that's a glowing report relative to how I actually felt of it at the time. And then in general, I'm also not particularly interested in true crime. I'm not going to lie. So I will probably not see it, unfortunately, for this conversation. Uh, over the weekend, I watched, I rewatched a movie that is uh, it, it, poorly written, poorly produced, poorly acted, underfunded. The effects are garbage. It's my third time watching it. I love it. Um, it's called Jesus Christ uh, Vampire Hunter. And it was filmed it was filmed in this neighborhood. Like most of the buildings, it's like, I know exactly where that is. That's two blocks from here. One, the, one of the scenes was filmed uh, behind the building that you and I used to live in together. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, yeah. So 
very, very, very uh, different kind of experience. But I do get that idea of like, oh, this is Canadian. That's actually kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, jump to our first track. This is just the one of us. We'll be back just.
and welcome back to Cancria, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And uh, that was uh, Kitty Prozank. And the track was just the one of us. All right, moving now into Edmonton. There is a an incredible project, the Edmonton Queer History Project. My friend uh, Chris uh, Cheng Phillips um, in in Edmonton, mm-hmm. I think has been involved with this for, for many years as they've been trying to put it together. It's been about two years in the making. Um, how about we play the video where they describe this project and then we'll we'll talk about why well, I mean, why it's so important. Or at least some of the video. Well, it, this is spoken word, so we'll be playing the audio yes. from the video. Yes, because <laughs> you can't see on the radio. I mean, yeah. All right, we'll be back just after this. When you think about queer history, what images come to mind? Do you immediately think about the Stonewall riots, pride parades, the devastating impact of the HIV-AIDS epidemic? Or maybe you recall the protests for human rights and equality, like the fight to legalize same-sex marriage. These are all monumental moments in queer history. But what about the queer history that's happened in our own community? The Edmonton Queer History Project exists to educate not only the 2S LGBTQ community, but everyone about Edmonton's vibrant and storied queer history. One notable story of Edmonton's queer history centers on the remarkable Michael Fair, who began his journey to activism when he was arrested with over 50 men as part of the Pisces Health Spa Raid in 1981. Michael fought back through the courts and ended up winning his case while others had their lives ruined forever. Michael went on to become an influential community activist and became Alberta's first openly gay politician when he was elected to Edmonton City Council in 1992. Michael's courageous advocacy throughout the years led to the creation of many important community organizations that still operate today, including HIV Edmonton and the Edmonton Arts Council. As a result of his tireless community advocacy, Michael has been recognized by having a local city park and a junior high school named in his honor. Another influential story of Edmonton's queer history revolves around Delwyn Briand, an instructor at King's College who was fired due to his sexual orientation in 1991. Delwyn took his wrongful dismissal to court, and after seven hard-fought years, his case was heard before the Supreme Court of Canada, and he won. His landmark case set the precedence for the inclusion of sexual orientation in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which led to the new protections being included in Alberta's Human Rights Act. Edmonton is full of queer history. Do you know about Women's Space, which held dances, campouts, and events that helped to connect Edmonton's lesbian community together? Or how about E2S, the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society, which began in 2001 to promote ceremony, healing, connection, and recognition for two-spirit communities within all aspects of society. These are only a few of the numerous, notable stories and moments that have helped to shape and define Edmonton's queer history. Queer history and queer people have always existed in Edmonton. You just need to know where to look. Through the Edmonton Queer History Project, we have researched and developed a queer history map downtown walking tours, an interactive multimedia website filled with images and stories, and a new podcast all designed to help make Edmonton's invisible queer history visible and accessible. Look and listen. You'll find and unearth stories about queer people from the past and present and how these inspiring leaders have helped to bring forth local and national change. As queer youth continue to dare to be themselves authentically and unapologetically, it's important for them and everyone to remember the monumental movements and moments that have helped support them to thrive and be visible and vocal today. We invite you to join us in discovering the people, places, and moments that have helped to shape and influence Edmonton's queer history. We're here, we're queer, and we are everywhere. Help us document and share this important history. So that was some of the, uh, you know, the, the the trailer, I believe, for the Edmonton uh, Queer History Project. I really like this idea, and I think it is one that really ought to be copied uh, across Canada. I think it is a fantastic project. So the idea of making accessing your local history easier Mm-hmm. And, and more intuitive in an online way with the podcast, you know, bringing those stories into storytelling, um, you know, I think is really interesting. And I am loath <laughs> to people referring to Stonewall riots, you know, it, but, and I get it, I get it. Like Martha oh, yeah. Johnson was written out of history um, and there were trans women involved at the Stonewall riots, but 
you know, footage, you know, photographs, witness statements. There was yeah. a heck of a lot of gay men, just straight up gay men yep. at these riots doing their thing. Mm-hmm. In addition to such a diverse collection of people. Yeah. And it was the drag queens that were the most, uh, you know, penalized and trans women. But, you know, it wasn't a, a riot of just that. So that bugs me to begin with. Yeah. yeah the yeah. fact that we have, we, you know, pontified, um, you know, Martha P. Johnson and no one else was relevant to or, or even there, which, well, <laughs> which makes me think, I'm like, it wasn't, you know, like what this is. I mean, that bugs me. But, Further I think to that, the fact I think that everyone part of the reason why the gay men aren't as uh, prominent in the story is because, uh, it, it, do you know how zebras work? Because like zebras are they're black and white stripes on a savanna, like they stand out. But when you have thousands of zebras and they're running in different directions, they're kind of camouflaged against themselves. And when you go to the the sort of like descriptions of the Stonewall riots, there were a lot of gay white men there. But there were a lot of gay white men there. And when they're all running around, it's just a bunch of gay white men running around. They're sort of camouflaged against themselves. Whereas if you're a six foot two black drag queen in three inch heels, people remember you. Mm-hmm. So there, there's sharper memory of the people who just weren't zebras sort of disguised against the background of other people similar to themselves. So definitely there, there were more... Um, more people who stood out in history and people's memories who would not like a lot of it had to do with the fact that they did stand out from the crowd visually and sort of like demographically. Um, but yeah, it's other cities have done projects approaching this. So like here in Ottawa, they did the, the, the bank history, uh, no, the, the, the bank street, the, the, the village history here in Ottawa. But uh, and it is publicly accessible, but they didn't quite market it to the same degree. Like you just need to know who to ask, and we know that you ask Glenn. You say, "Glenn, can I have a copy of the history?" And he'll just email it to you. I mean, this is a website for them as well. Yeah, but you have to know what it's called. Like you, you can't go through City Hall to access it. You know. Um, so and and I think Vancouver did a history as well. Uh, Toronto is doing an ongoing history through the archives. Uh, Montreal is kind of doing an archive, uh, an ongoing history, but to have a, a dedicated project that's advertised to this degree, I think that is definitely the, the new and exciting part. Try to reach out a little bit more. And it's also interesting, like you said, trailer earlier. And I, was like, I don't think trailers apply to academic research projects, but they do for podcasts. You do make podcast trailers. And, oh, and I think enough. that that's, that's part of what this is. You know, it's, okay. I think for Edmontonians, being able to dip your toes into the history of your own city mm. and even for Canadians all over the all over the country you know yeah i think what the edmonton queer history project does is tell those stories mm-hmm. that you know we just don't hear about that have mm-hmm. been lost to the annals of time you know it makes me realize you know i i thought about this a lot when i was working with capital pride in ottawa and mm. i think you did as well especially with the history of the lgbt liaison committee mm-hmm. you know we are at a point in the 2020s where the that generation of folks who took the beatings who mm. survived the aids epidemic who were fired for being gay, who had their children taken from them. You mm-hmm. know, all of those folks are now retiring, and sadly, some of them are passing. Like that, mm-hmm. that you know, time has just caught up with them. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a worry that those stories, those Canadian stories, are going to be lost in the sort of you know just lost to time. Um, so yeah, this is a really exciting project. I, I, for me, I think it hits the nail on the head of what we should be trying to do in our community, which is preserve and, and learn from those, those stories that happened where we live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was going through the archives for Ottawa, I discovered how many Canadian laws, like national level laws uh, came about because the police specifically in Ottawa mishandled uh, an event that happened in the queer community. And it, it's kind of interesting how much it did affect the national law. And some of it was just stuff like uh, uh, the big one that comes to mind right away is that you cannot publish in the media 
the name of an accused until there is evidence or, or if there's an active court case. And a lot of that was because there was a bunch of like acute people who were accused of being uh, homosexuals, just like gay men here in Ottawa. And then they published their name, place of work and home address in the newspapers. And there was a string of suicides. And then uh, it really interestingly enough, the police at the time were like, Oh, 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 dang. And no one has ever held the media accountable. No one's ever sent an angry letter to the Ottawa citizens saying, how come you never apologize for that? Uh, but then that became national policy of, of how the media handles ongoing investigations because there was a series of events that happened here in Ottawa that just went really badly. And this was like in the 60s, I think, late 60s, early 70s. I don't remember the exact dates, but it was mm-hmm. it was some time ago. And it was it was. Strange and interesting because I, I did see a couple of uh, news clippings and people at the time, um, even though they had no sympathy for the gay men, they were still like, this is not appropriate. Like they should at least stand in, in court before this kind of thing happens to them. So even then, people understood that there was a lack of justice in what had happened. So that kind of thing is that's interesting. It's it's good to learn that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I I am going to sign up to that podcast and 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 keep an eye out for uh, for how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great great story out of Edmonton. It was great to see these kind of projects come to life, and um, I believe it was funded by the Canada Research and and so on. So great uh, great there. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, move on, shall we? We have been keeping an eye on the story unfolding in Florida. Um, we're not going to dive into it. I think uh, the media have been talking about that no say gay bill. We talked about it briefly a couple of weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. But I did want to mention what a really interesting story that's unfolding in Texas. And that is uh, a law where essentially they can direct the Department of Family and Protective Services to investigate families where they have accessed trans healthcare for their children. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if you have accessed healthcare, which means, you know, licensed doctors and physicians, mm-hmm. um, you can be charged with child abuse for having access medical care for your trans child. Um, the judges have already put the stop to um, the, the State Department investigating those, and it's now working through the system. Um mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's quite shocking, and frankly, there's been a, a a sort of rash of GoFundMe campaigns where people are crowdfunding to leave Texas. Mm-hmm. So all of these families with young kids who are trans are like, how how are we going to navigate their growing up mm-hmm. where we can have that child taken away from us just for talking to a doctor? Mm-hmm. Um, it's obscene. So, and it's the only state in in the U.S. where it's you know that it's that perverse law is in place. So, yeah, they're now crowdfunding to leave Texas uh, in some cases. But I mean, I think this echoes. There's been a, a, a sort of a, a you know a spattering of anti-trans, in particular, legislation in the states, sort of copycats from one state to the next. I think Idaho recently copied the California bill mm-hmm. almost verbatim. Um, so we'll see how that goes next. Um, it's all yeah. trans youth as well, to, to, to be specific as well. Like nobody is limiting uh, consenting legal adults. It, it's it's youth. And some of this is wrapped up in the discussion of at one point in time, do you become a consenting adult? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's complicated. And I think the number one thing that really annoys me about this is that it, it's being oversimplified all around. That, you know, it is a complicated issue. It's not quite as easy of uh, as, you know, my six-year-old wants what they want, so we're going to let them get what they want. It's like, it, it depends on what it is. It, it's complicated. And then on the other hand, you have like my 17-year-old knows exactly what they want. They've been socially transitioned for years now. They're totally into it. Um, so they're three months short of being their 18th birthday. Like, what's the harm in... in you know, giving them testosterone or estrogen at this point in time. And it, it, they're different issues. And the uh, the number one thing that really frustrates me about this is everything's being cleanly put into easy boxes and it's not an easy box kind of a situation. Well, I think what jumps out at me is we see this story in Texas where they're instructing the Department of Family and Protective Services 
to investigate as child abuse access mm-hmm. to healthcare. Whereas in London, an independent uh, medical commission there, which it's the same one that, for example, issued advice around the COVID pandemic. So it's the mm-hmm. National uh, Independent Medical Commission um, issued its own report on access to trans healthcare for youth, where mm-hmm. it frankly said that Britain is massively undersupplying that medical care. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, you know, the, the issue with here is that there's just a not, not enough physicians mm-hmm. where these kids are having to wait for so long just to be able to see people that mm-hmm. the compounded impact of that is unacceptable. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really startling to see London's approach versus, you know, uh, Texas's approach to yeah, yeah. the same issue. Is They really are chalk and cheese, but... Uh, We've been keeping an eye on it uh, as we go forward. All right, let's jump to a track. This is um, Stromae has a new album out. We mm-hmm. are massive fans, and uh, I would suggest everybody go and check out their, their uh, Stromae's new album. This is Filigree, uh, and we will be back just after this. Être seul, c'est difficile. Et là, ça fait des années. Et de juger, c'est facile. Surtout quand on n'y a pas goûté Le plus dur, bah c'était la première fois Puis le plus dur, c'est de savoir Quand sera la dernière fois C'est vrai, je suis pas contre Un peu de tendresse de temps en temps Et puis cette fois-ci, ben je pourrais le faire en l'insultant Oui, tout est négociable dans la vie moyenne en paiement En plus, je suis sûrement son meilleur client Mais oh, laissez donc ma maman Oui, je sais C'est vrai qu'elle n'est pas parfaite C'est un héros Et ce sera toujours fièrement Que j'en parlerai Que j'en parlerai Je suis un fils de pute Comme ils disent Après tout ce qu'elle a fait pour eux Pardonne leurs bêtises Oh chère mère Ils te déshumanisent C'est plus facile Les mêmes te courtisent Et tout le monde ferme les yeux Tout le monde me déteste Alors que c'est moi qui les nourris Leur vie serait bien plus modeste Sans moi elle serait pourrie Le lit et la sécurité ont un prix madame Ben oui dans la vie tout se paye On te l'avait donc jamais appris mmh. On m'accuse de faire de la traite d'être humain Mais 50, 40, 30 ou 20% c'est déjà bien Faudrait pas qu'elles se prennent un peu trop pour des mannequins Mesdames, où devrais-je dire putain C'est un héros Et ce sera toujours fièrement Que j'en parlerai Que j'en parlerai Je suis un fils de pute Comme ils disent Après tout ce qu'elle a fait pour eux Pardonne leurs bêtises Ô oh, chère mère Ils te déshumanisent C'est plus facile Les mêmes te courtisent Et tout le monde ferme les yeux Je sais que c'est ton boulot Faut bien que je fasse le mien, non Entre le tien et le mien La différence c'est que moi je paye des impôts Allez circuler madame, reprends tes papiers Ce qui te reste de dignité Aux femmes, trouve-toi un vrai métier Mais oh Laissez donc ma maman Oui je sais C'est vrai qu'elle n'est pas parfaite C'est un héros Et ce sera toujours fièrement Que j'en parlerai Que j'en parlerai Je suis un fils de pute Comme il dit Après tout ce qu'elle a fait pour eux, pardonne leurs bêtises. Oh chère mère, ils te déshumanisent. C'est plus facile, les mêmes te courtisent. Et tout le monde ferme les yeux. Welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And uh, let's start off with Jesse Smollett. Oh, yes. Now, just to catch up the folks in the room, um, there was a spate of attacks on on queer folks in the States and and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesse Smollett essentially went to the police saying that he was attacked by 
by these two brothers. Um, you know, yeah. and, he said that he was attacked by two random white dudes down an alleyway wearing mega. Not one of those descriptors were were accurate. Um, At two a.m. in the part of Chicago where nobody lives because it's the business district uh, during a uh, winter vortex where it was like thirty below. It, it, just everything about it was weird. It was weird. It was a weird claim. And he lived in LA. If you're going to stage a thing, do it in your home. I don't know. So, the, the, the whole thing was weird. I mean, I think many people had sort of implied mm-hmm. that Jersey Smollett, who was on the TV show Empire, um, staged his own hate crime attack. Yes. Raise his own profile, um, you know, his own celebrity profile, mm-hmm. which does equal higher dollars for, you know, certain actors. Yep. So that was that was part of the thinking that this was sort of piggybacking national tragedies across the United States where, where people are being uh, attacked. Um, anyway, so he was found guilty of, I think, um, misdemeanors, essentially. Yeah. Um, so you do you have details on, on how that shook out, uh, Sebastian? Uh, oh, I don't have them in front of me, but I do remember them because it was just this morning. Um, he's going to prison for 150 days, which, as I'm sure you can calculate, is approximately five months. Uh, he has to pay the Chicago police force, I think it's 240000 American? It was uh, 120000 in restitution right. and a fine of 25000 for making a false police report. Right. Okay. Right. And that, that's basically to, to pay back for uh, like misappropriation of resources, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's another one, which is uh, uh, definitely parole. And then a, what's it called? The thing where they keep an eye on you for a while. Um not a perjury. I'm having a brain fart, having an old man moment. I can't remember the word. The thing where, where you have to like uh, report to your thingy officer. Um, of parole? What are parole, you that's okay, it. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, a fairly long parole, actually, for what it is. I think it's like three years or something like that. Um, and a lot of people, like the, the, it just happened this morning. So I haven't been able to check in that much on what the buzz is. A lot of people are sort of acknowledging that if you're going to, um, like, if you can definitely confirm that somebody faked a hate crime, you can't just let them get away with it. Something should come of it. I think five months is a bit steep. I think just sort of like a, you know, a symbolic three months, you know, we're going to, we're going to send you to a, a low security, minimum security prison for a very short period of time, just to symbolically say, you can't do that guy. Um, I think that that would have been, a little bit, but I mean, the difference between three months and five months, it's your life. It's two months in prison. That's not great, but that's, mm-hmm. it's not seven years, you know? So yeah, it, it's, uh, and, and, and his behavior in, in court, a lot of people have been referring to it as peculiar as well. Well, he did, uh, insist multiple times. He said, for example, uh, your honor, I respect you and I respect the jury, but I did not do this. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, I am not suicidal. And if anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it to myself. And you must all know that he is now being put into protective custody inside the, the court system mm-hmm. uh, where he is. There's cameras in the cell and, and body like the prison guards with with uh, camera vests and so on. Yeah, that that confused me. Like all I could think of was like, did, does he think he's going to get Epstein? Uh, yeah, is this like a, an Epstein paranoia here? It's, yeah. Uh, he's also Who, requested a retrial. Um, and I think that got shot down like last month or so. He'd requested a new trial. Do you remember okay. that one? I do. Yeah. A lot of it had to do with the fact that uh, how the um, the method by which the jury was selected, uh, he did not like. But the thing was that when, during jury selection, both the both sides of the case can at any point in time veto the whole thing and either start again or go through the process. There's also usually a surplus. Like if you need 12 jurors, you actually get 16 people in the, in the stands just in case somebody drops out or something. Uh, somebody gets sick. Um, and then among the people who sit in the, the jury box, there's like a lottery for who actually ends up 
being on the the committee that actually decides. I don't know if that's a Chicago thing or an Illinois thing, but I know that's not a universal thing, but it's a thing they do. They have more jurors than they need. Um, but the whole thing was, um, but yeah, the, the, one of the reasons why I got shut down was because the judge said you had during the whole process at any point in time, you could say, I don't feel comfortable with this. Can we, can we start again? And it was just a, a matter of procedure. Like maybe it was shady. Maybe the people who were chosen were not ideal, but like you, your lawyers had dozens of opportunities to speak mm. up and nobody spoke up. So, I mean, just according to, you know, um, as a matter of course, uh, we are not going to reopen that segment of it. Like maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing that jumps out at me was he was convicted of lying to the police and everybody else about what, what, what went on. A jury yeah. found him guilty of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the harshest sentence in the United States for, for a false report, at least in this state, uh, you know, this was in Chicago when, where this all took place mm-hmm. is three years. Now, mm-hmm. his defense lawyers were arguing, you know, Jesse Smollett's never had any criminal priors, you know, maybe just probation, small fine, call it a day, promises never to do it again. Mm-hmm. The prosecution said something, and I think this is what echoes what you were saying, Sebastian, mm-hmm. which is at no point has he said, yep, I lied, that was me. Yeah. You know, has taken no responsibility for wasting police time, energy, mm-hmm. resources, and potentially making it more difficult for actual hate crimes, uh, you know, mm-hmm. reporting to come forward, because now they're going to be looked at as, you know, maybe just another Jesse Smollett, you know, another fake uh, hate crime to raise a profile. Mm-hmm. So there was worry from the prosecution that he hasn't really, you know, shown any contrition for, for what happened. So yeah. Yeah, they. That's why there's a custodial element. I think the judge balanced it and said, "Look, you know, probation is not sufficient." Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that's why there's a custodial element to uh, to his uh, sentence. Well, that's that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you should throw the book at people. I, I really do believe it. Well, I mean, certainly for for first cases. I mean, as much as I don't really like true crime. I am fascinated by criminology and I do know that uh, there, there are pretty good stats out there showing that a lot of people who do a crime, most of the time, that is the only crime they do. It's something crazy, like 80% of the crime done in, well, the, 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 the data comes from the States because they have really good crime data, but it's probably equally true around the world. About 80% of crime is done by the same people, just like high recidivism. You get individuals who do a lot of crime and then you have a bunch of other people you know, after they come out of prison, if they don't do uh, anything else within the first two years, they're probably never going to to violate any other laws ever again, other than like parking fines or, you know, little things like that. Um, so I, I genuinely do agree with the idea of being soft on a first conviction, unless that conviction is just gruesome and horrible. Um, so I, I think that's that's fine and that's fair. And hopefully he learns something. And I hope everybody learns something. I hope. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> we'll see what happens next. It sounds like he's going to challenge it, and we'll, you know, maybe in three months, time, 150 days, mm-hmm. um, he may have uh, changed his mind about his current position. <laughs> uh, we'll see how that goes. Or even just the evidence, like they they showed footage of himself with the Osendaya brothers staging and practicing the event on on camera and they showed it to him and at no point in time did he at least acknowledge like that is potentially bad like it was just everything about it it was just so maybe fishy they have, <laughs> maybe they should have asked him if it was a rehearsal yeah well i know. mean all right let's move on according to the patriarch kirill of the russian orthodox church he is the patriarch of the Moscow Russian Orthodox Church. He's held that position since 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, According to him, we may have discovered the actual reason that Russia has decided to invade the Ukraine Mm -hmm. and uh, murder thousands of innocent civilians. And that is because of pride parades. I see. So according to the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, in Moscow, um, who, you know, reliable independent figure. 
Um, <laughs> he, you know, he claims that uh, it is because we, you know, the Ukrainians, um, you know, accepted sin, and, and that's why there are young Russian boys being left to freeze to death in 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 this invasion. So, I mean, it makes sense to me. Does it make any sense to you, Sebastian? I mean, they also share a border with Finland, and Finland is way gayer than the Ukraine is. So, I mean, that, this that is just, true. it just this doesn't check out. It just does not check out. So what he said, this is translated from a speech that he gave or a sermon he gave, and I'll quote here, pride parades are designed to demonstrate that sin is one variation of human behavior. That's why in order to join the club of those countries, you have to have gay pride parades. Um, so yeah, that's... <laughs> evidently that's it i mean there ukraine had a pride parade and therefore dot 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 now there's russians invading i mean for me it made a lot of, it, it was very logical i don't think nato has a pride parade requirement like even like france uh barely has a pride parade and that's more to do with the fact that the french just don't really do parades they they have a festival they have like a you know a a, a coffee and wine garden because they are French, so they're going to French it up, and Frenching it up means they have no particular interest in a parade. So, I mean, obviously, if, if he's just talking about pride festivals in general, I mean, even then, there are plenty of, you know, pretty accepting places, uh, like um, uh, the Balkans. The Balkans? No. Well, Lithuania and Latvia, anyway, they're, they're trying to reclaim their pre-Christian uh, faith systems, kind of like Norway's bringing back the North system. And... Uh, they're very accepting of, of gay people in their cultures, uh, in these pre-Christian cultures. And uh, as far as I know, there's there's no particular festivals or parades there. They're, they're more chilled out. They're more of a campfire kind of a, a country. I've heard very good things about Latvia. <laughs> okay. Well, we <laughs> recommend, you know, if, the, if their uh, tourism board wants to sponsor us, we are available <laughs> for, uh, for like I grew up in Burlington. There's a huge Latvian population there. That makes sense. I did <laughs> want to play uh, Spaceman by Sam Ryder. Uh, so Sam Ryder has uh, is a TikTok star, 12 okay. million followers on TikTok in Britain, and has now been chosen to uh, be the British entry to Eurovision at, uh, at the song contents coming up in May. Are they going to send someone who is not terrible? Well, last year they changed the rule. A couple of years ago, they changed the rules at, at Eurovision to make it more difficult for you to get zero points. Mm. They actually honestly believed it was mathematically impossible for you to have zero points, to which Britain said, Hold, Hold my, my beer. <laughs> And Britain managed to score net zero <laughs> in Eurovision. I think that, I think you know the only way you, they would they could do any worse is is if Russia was not you know competing. Then, yeah. uh, then maybe. But anyway, this is interesting. There is the whole country is looking at uh, at this entry at Sam Ryder being like maybe maybe we can get above a zero. Um, with their 12 million TikTok followers. So if they get in the top half, they will be light years ahead of where they've been for like. Yeah. Decades. Yeah. Jen, J John Newman just like flunked out at <laughs> zero, zero points. All right. Well, we'll uh, I won't play that, but you can check it out. Samurai the Spaceman. We will, however, be playing out with Perfect and Broken, which is the title track from Amy Bishop, another. Uh, reality star got uh, uh, a lot of a credit from the uh, CTV's The Launch. So this is Perfect and Broken by Amy Bishop. I have been Luke Smith. And I have been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. I'm bad at being in love And I'm bad at being alone I'm lost when I Without somebody's arms to call home I need someone to make me feel valued Yet it feels like I'm never enough I wander the world half empty Hoping someone will just fill my cup Oh, I'm perfect
It's been locked up. 